talk about the Alex Murdoch trial on the accused uh, podcast here or blog. I think is a better description at this point. Here with Luke Sheely, who's my twin brother, and I'm Brian Sheely. And we got Hannah and here. Hannah. <laughs> Hannah here with us, um, as always, to give us a lot of uh, non-lawyer insight. As you know, too many lawyers can often be difficult. But let's just get right to it. And we had two witnesses to this today. Um, but the big one we're going to talk about is Alex Murdoch. Um, you know, the defense, if we're to believe the rumors, wrestled with the decision to put him up on the stand. You know, due to the fact that he's got so many financial crimes that have come in as a motive theory for the state. You know, how's he going to how's he going to deal with that? You know, Luke and I always said if we were representing him. We would be just falling on our swords on the financial crime so that he has a shot, a shot in hell at defending himself on the murder case. Um, he would have to, as we've been saying, go up there and just raise his hand up and say he did wrong on the financial crimes and uh, own up to it so that he can have credibility in front of the jury. And that's what he did today. Um, I mean, Jim Griffin, I think Luke and I both were kind of hoping that if he testified that Jim Griffin would be doing the direct examination rather than Dick Carpoolian, totally different styles, but it seems like Jim Griffin has more of a, a, a little bit of warmth um, with some of these witnesses, and Dick's more of a kind of hammer-style lawyer, and so they, they went with uh, Griffin, and they started right out the gate with primacy and recency. Luke, what does that mean? Uh, well, primacy and recency is a persuasive technique to really keep someone's attention. We're not going to be four weeks into a trial and put Alex Murdoch up and then be like, well, tell me where you're from. How old are you? I mean, you get out there, this jury's been waiting. <laughs> this is the only thing they care about is what this man has to say, and it's, did you kill your wife? Did you kill your son? No. And just get right to the meat of it. And then you can kind of back, back, back up and flesh out these things and continue to recency is the peppering it out in middle parts. And certainly at the end, that's going to be the last thing you want to hear from him. So that's primacy and recency. Right. And so he answered the question right out of the gates. His lawyer said, you know, did you kill Paul? Did you kill Maggie? And he said no. And then the next big question the explaining they had to answer is, you know, is that your voice down at the kennels? Yes, it was. And why did you lie? And so he, they went right out of the gates with that as well. Because you don't want to, with this kind of trial, with this everything at stake here, you don't want to do the tales from where you're from, how long did you, you know, go to school, all this kind of, all this kind of nonsense. You want to get right to the point so the jurors aren't losing their minds. And he did that, and essentially he said, you know, I lied because at the time, he says he was heavily under the influence of opioids, and he even mentioned the, the withdrawal of opioids, but he just said that the opioid abuse had him pretty paranoid, and he just, you know, lied. You know, it's kind of what you were saying yeah. the other day, and so he, he used that word paranoia. I, I don't feel like that was scripted. I think that was his own word. It, it has a pretty negative connotation. But, you know, when you are addicted to pills or on any substance, you can be paranoid. But he, he did qualify it. I don't think he was just saying I was high is why I lied. I think he said, 
you know, it partially had me paranoid, but he referenced the boat case, the fact that he didn't really trust law enforcement. You know, they had already charged his son with criminal charges, Paul. So he was kind of, I mean, this is a guy whose granddaddy was solicitor, his dad was solicitor, his great granddad was solicitor. Over 100 years of being chief law enforcement in that area, yet all of a sudden, with his son's case, the boat case, and, and facing criminal charges, he, his family is on the receiving end of some negativity. So I think that plus the fact that, that you know, he's a, I would have hoped that he would have said it more clearly that look, as a former volunteer prosecutor, I know how this works. I know I'm the husband. I found them. Of course, I'm going to be suspect number one. So, you know, it probably, in my opinion, it would have been a better theory to say, look, I, I lied because I just wanted to get it out of, get it out of their minds thinking that I might be a suspect and let them focus on the real killer. That's what probably would have been a golden response. But he, he said something similar to that saying, look, I just didn't want them. I didn't trust them. I was paranoid. And once you lie, I mean, he said, I had to stick with that lie. I had to basically tell everybody about that lie. And here we are, you know, years later where he's having to admit it to gain credibility with this jury. And it's up to the jury to decide whether that's sincere. I mean, I, we can talk about the details of what he testified to, but before we do, I will say, and I put up, we have put up a lot of witnesses and cases. I mean, it feels like more often than not, a lot of defendants. Defendants. It feels like more often than not, we're putting up our defendant in a murder case to testify about self-defense typically, or even about, you know, something like this, saying they weren't there and why. But, um... I've mentioned this on a different podcast, but you, you got to have some raw materials to work with and having a, a client that's not a total dummy who does have some experience, you still, you still have to get across their credibility. And, and if he had not had all those numerous financial crimes and admissions of lying on separate financial side of this case, if you just had his testimony in a vacuum, I'd say he, he came across as pretty credible. I mean, it's, when he talks about his deceased family members, there's really raw emotion. It, it takes a lot to kind of cry on demand. Now, some people will say he's a narcissistic sociopath and that they can do that, but he produced snot dripping off his face on demand, and that's not something I've seen, so. <laughs> yeah, so Hannah, um, as we've been following this case, and it's kind of the defense has started their portion of the case, and they put up various witnesses, and it kind of seemed around last night that we we're going to be getting the answer on whether you know uh, Alec Murdoch was going to testify or not. And you know, Luke and I have been talking a lot about our opinions of not necessarily if we kind of felt like they for him to have a shot, they had to put him up. But mm -hmm. what was your, your how did you feel when you learned that they actually were going to put him up? What, what how did that resonate with you? Um, I think you actually texted me. Oh, I yeah. wasn't I wasn't watching at the time. I wasn't I was at work sadly. Um, but you know Wait, I you just, had a job other than this. I had a job other than this. But um, I did I did put it up so I could just listen to it. I mean I think you know a lot of people are at least listening along in the background. Um, but yeah, I was I thought it came kind of early. I don't know. I, I mean. So yeah, I was excited. I pretty much dropped what I was doing immediately, pulled it up, um, and I was excited to hear what he had to say. I know that we've kind of been floating around different ideas of like, what is his angle going to be? Like, what is his 
to Paul with the, um, the boat crash and that Paul was receiving a lot of threats via social media and stuff. I think I would have liked to have seen some of those. I don't know if they did show any of that, but I think that that would have been kind of powerful to have pulled some of those records from Paul's social media, you know, whatever it is, um, to hear those threats. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, you would have been interested in and if that was more accessible, any yeah. kind of records of threats and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, because he, he mentions that they were very you know, graphic, violent, um, detailed. Al so almost so detailed that they were seemed implausible. Is yeah. That, is that kind of what you're Right, like, so that he, you know, when this happened, that's immediately where his mind went. And so I think that would have been really useful, you know, for the defense um, had they presented, you know, some of those receipts, if you will. Let me, yeah. let me ask you this, as a non, as the one-third of this triumvirate <laughs> that is not a practicing trial lawyer, mm. you know, we get our trial blinders on sometimes, uh, even about our own clients and witnesses, but what was your initial gut reaction to his sincerity levels as he was testifying about his family? I found it to be legitimate. I mean, yeah, he, you know, he physically just crying a lot, yeah, you're right, he was, you know, losing snot, and so it's like, you know, I, I would find that hard to just drum up out of nowhere with no real emotion, and, you know, I think there was at one part, maybe this afternoon, where it maybe seemed a little insincere when he was kind of recalling, like, Maggie's laugh, and uh, kind of the way that, like, you know, she'd light up her room and everything, because that all seems kind of, I've read a lot of, uh, like, true crime novels and stuff, and I feel like that's kind of the... A little, a little right. scripted there. But other times, like, when he was talking about, you know, the experiences that he had with them, um, I found that all to be genuine, and you know, I can definitely agree that he is hurting uh, at the loss of these two people. What well, that means... Well, Luke, um, I think you'd be good to for the audience to maybe who were working and, and could catch all the trial, are you prepared to run down, not not word for word, or run down generally what um, Alec Murdoch said happened on June 7th? Yeah, I think I can. I mean, I think, they, you know, after they started explaining the big lie, they start off kind of this work day, going in, you know, he admitted to being confronted that day about missing money, but he acted like he wasn't, it was concerning, but it wasn't the end of the world for him because he felt like he had ways to pay back the money. He, he had basically come clean about being an opioid user for 20 plus years from a, a football knee injury. So we're kind of hearing that, how he's making bad choices. You know, I don't know that we ever got a proper explanation about how he's spending that much money on opioids, but later we'll talk about Craig Waters Cross and he admits also it's a lavish lifestyle he was living, but so they're, they're taking a lot of the wind out of the sails about the things that the state has been hammering him for motive this entire trial. He's saying, yeah, I was somewhat concerned, but I knew that I, you know, I, had, I had good equity in my homes. I had the ability to make money. Um, so I figured I could find a way out of it. There was some distraction with his father going to the hospital that kind of ended that. But it, it really kind of deflated the concept that that day he was so concerned that he had that he would have to kill his family just to distract from the impending financial discovery 
they fleshed out the boat case a little bit and kind of the state of litigation. And he, you know, he didn't seem that concerned. They were more prioritizing the criminal charges. And there was a motion that he was mostly wanting to change venue, but he wasn't concerned about revealing his financial situation. I mean, he, he said he had handwritten written some documents on that. He was prepared to turn it over. It was ready to be typed up. So it wasn't the type of thing um, he, he fleshed out that would cause him to kill his family as a distraction, as the state has said all along. Um, he kind of jumps back to the day. You know, there's little details that the state has wanted to say you're a lying liar because you don't recall every single timestamp. Like, he's like, yeah, I went to work later than I thought I had. But I, you know, if you recall, I encouraged them to get my key card from work. So they're bringing out how he's kind of tried to help the investigation all along. He brought out how he was begging for the, for the cops to get the OnStar data. What can I do to help you get this OnStar data? And because he really thought it would clear this up, it would exonerate him. He knew they were sniffing and, at him. And that is referenced in that interrogation video from Agent Owens. I mean, he's saying, listen, y'all have the OnStar data, anything I can do to help. I mean, he is, he is you know, that, that is corroborated by the video. And he would I think he generally said, I, I just knew it would kind of set me free if they could get that data because I knew I wasn't, I didn't throw away Maggie's phone, right. basically, right? Right, they're, re they're reiterating the things that he has done to try to aid the investigation along the way to show he has nothing to hide. So. And they basically get to that day, and there's been this ongoing issue with the sunflowers, and we did hear kind of the relevance of that for those folks out there who don't grow up on huge tracts of farmland or hunt. I mean, we heard from Nolan Tootin and other witnesses that, you know, the, the sunflowers were there to attract doves. And, you know, I hunt, but, you know, dove hunting can be a social thing, especially in that part of the world. You, you don't want to interrupt, you know, the crop that's going to plant attract these birds and so that was a big deal to Paul who was just in love with that property a big deal to his dad and so that seemed to be a priority on Paul's mind which he referenced and we heard from Nolan Tootin they were going to plow that under that day um, and Alex was aware of it and so that was that was the plan he got home sure he got home a little later than he originally thought but he met up with Paul they you know he kind of had this really nice um testimony about what they did, the duck ponds and certain trees and deer stands they checked. It's pretty, I mean, it's clear that these guys love this property. And so you have this father-son bonding moment that seemed pretty routine. We heard Paul being described as Paul Paul or either Paul Paul. I'm not sure. So, I mean, Hannah, did you catch that at all about, you know, these terms, these nicknames in terms of endearment that we're hearing for the first time from Alec Murdoch or... He called Paul, Paul, Paul. Mm -hmm. You know, he called Buster, Bust. Bust. He had a, a Roro was a nickname for Paul's friend. He called Maggie. What was Maggie's name? Mag? Just Mags. But like, did you catch any of that? Working your other job? Did you? <laughs> did you? Or if not, we can talk about it. But, you know, it's it, it seemed to be you know, the yes. way he would talk to family member about his son as opposed to being up in court, and I'm sure that was not discouraged by his lawyers. Mm -hmm. To These are terms of endearment, but tell me your take on all that. Yeah, I think maybe it, it was a little overkill um, at times. I mean, it definitely, you know, I think it gives a nod. You know, at times when it kind of came out naturally, like if he was telling a story and kind of got lost in the emotion and reverted back to like a nickname, that's just because what comes normal. 
I think, you know, that that's all here and good and fine, but I did kind of start to find that a little rehearsed or scripted or maybe, like, ingenuine, but, um, yeah, and maybe it's sometimes hard, hard to follow. I was really interested about the calls to Rogan, uh, Paul's friend, because that's who Paul was in, like, contact with just before he died. Right. Um, so that, and I know that he touched on that, and just because, you know, that, that's, that was kind of Paul's best friend, it was like a son to him, he's very close, he wanted him there, I think, you know, he began to get choked up there, um, but those, those two phone calls were pretty suspicious to me when I first saw the timeline delivered by Brandy. Can I pose a question to this podcast and to our viewers? Pose, pose away. <laughs> just, just occurred to me, I don't know why, but if I'm the defense team, especially after hearing this time that's undisputed that Alec had with his son, Paul, where they rode around in the woods and checked the fields and were isolated, loaded up some equipment, always, always had a gun on you. And hog season is all the time. So if you see a hog, you can shoot it. If the state wants to say that he needs to do some violence to get sympathy, to distract from impending financial doom, and also kill two birds with one stone, if you kill Paul, that kind of kills that financial boat crash case. Why don't just you kill Paul out there in the woods and say, you know, call it an accident, you know, where mm. he had, the gun was loaded and he dropped it and shot him, or he went to shoot, a, I went to shoot a pig and he stripped him from me. Why not kill Paul out there in an isolated way? Why kill Maggie too? Because just killing Paul, if you had them all to yourself and that was your plan, solves all those same problems without killing his wife. So why, why not just do it that way? I mean, I'm just that, well. I mean, that's an interesting point. You know, I guess if you're arguing for the state, you would say, well, he was sloppy. He was on drugs. He was trying to get the courage to do it. It was, you know, he finally did it spontaneously once he got the courage. But you know, to your point. You know, he testified today, and we can get more into it, that once, you know, he was having to borrow a bunch of money. He had equity in Moselle, which was entirely Maggie's name. He had equity in the Edisto Beach House, which was half in his name. It's all marital property. It's marital property, but in terms of line of credit, getting loaned as he was doing through the bank, you know, he would... He testified today about just, you know, when he needed a line of credit loan, he would get the paperwork and Maggie would just sign, basically sign without looking at it because, there were, you know, that the Moselle property was so valuable. So when she died, he said he couldn't get any loans anymore right. because, you know, he just wouldn't be able to do it because she owned that property that now was caught up in, in probate. Right. right. So it, um, that I thought that was an interesting counterpoint to the, you know, any kind of suspicion about, I mean, he definitely needed money. He was stealing money. He was doing shady deals with a bank to get money. But it seemed like if you're to believe the state's theory that he killed his family to hide the financial crimes, it sounds like, you know, half of his stealing, it seems like maybe was to try to put the toothpaste back in the tube in his life and all the financial problems. Um, and so by killing her, it really... Limited his shadow self in the foot. If that's their theory. limited his, his ability to access money. But interesting point. I think it's a great point. Um, we got. Let's take a timeout real quick. Okay, we got do, some questions. And do a sound check. Um, okay. So this is with the mic. 
So we'll just do a test. Test one. Just say test two. Test two. Test check three. Check, check, check. <laughs> so this is with the mic. I'm going to unplug and see if it's just better to do it without altogether. Alright, test it now. Test one. Check, test, check three. Test two. Test three. This is without the mic. How are we doing? Everybody hear us? Without the mic. So give us your vote with or without the mic. Better. Fine. Without the mic. Without the mic. Okay. Uh, Alright. Okay. It's, it'll be our prop mic. <laughs> Hannah's prop mic. Prop mic. Uh, Hannah's mic. We need a new mic. Uh-oh. That's okay. That's my bad. So I'll go ahead and type up that email to Jim Griffin about that for closing. Um, how <laughs> killing two makes no sense when you could just kill one. But but putting that aside, getting back to his testimony, it was a kind of endearing father-son evening before dinner where they did the things they liked that allowed him to call him Papa and we talked about the tree video and how he'd been... You know, working on that tree for years, it just won't stay straight. And, and let's be clear, Murdoch is a very folksy, charismatic guy. Um, you know, uh, objectively. Objectively. Putting, putting aside all of our biases and whether he's a sociopathic narcissist killer or not, you know, so he, he did embrace those moments. And the more he can relate and be embraced and be humanized, the more likely a jury is willing to buy into threads of reasonable doubt. It's just simple. They like him more. They are with him more. Because so far, he's just been an isolated figure, a criminal of financial crimes, and you can only hear him in his recorded interviews and confessions. And we're going to vote for Mike. Okay, bring back the mic. All right, Mike, Mike is ba back, and it's here to stay. Just on this plug in, right? Yeah. Okay. And so he talks about doing this work, and then, you know, it's June. He's unloading bulldozers with his son. They're down at the kennels. And then Maggie shows up from Edisto. And, you know, they made a point to talk about the baseball game earlier, that Maggie really had been staying there. You know, but had bounced back to Edisto to, to supervise some construction, got a mani-pedi, came back. And that was important. Um, and then we started getting to the really interesting stuff about where they might have been. He took a shower, which is, he's saying, look, I'm 6'4", I'm 265, I was working, I took a shower. Which, you know, us growing up here in South Carolina summer, I'm taking a shower every hour. And, you know, if you're doing stuff outside, um, or you're just stinking, but, and he talks about coming down, they're eating this dinner, and where they're eating, and the TV's always on, which plays into the theory later that he wouldn't have heard shots, but that, you know, Paul ate quickly and was tooling around somewhere, and then Maggie's like, well, come on, let's go on down the kennel, I want to see the dogs, and he's like, no, I'm on the couch, I'm just showering. And, you know, that, that kind of resonated to me, yeah. I mean, he had, he just showered, and she loved the dogs, and there was a lot of testimony from Alan Murdoch today about how Maggie really loved those dogs. And so she liked to frequently go to the kennel, and he had just taken a shower, and he was relaxing and resting. 
And like a lot of husbands will do, they just didn't want to get dragged back down to the kennel in the hot. Um, and he kind of said the kennel was a little bit chaotic because the dogs would get, you know, once they're released, so Maggie can can um, be with them. You know, they're running all around, you know, chase them. Sometimes they're, you know, getting into things as he discussed a little bit. But go ahead, Luke. So they eat their dinner, and Paul is, is piddling around the house somewhere. Maggie wants them to go. And he basically says he's kind of protesting, like, you know, I don't want to go. Um, so he assumes that Maggie and Paul went down there together. Now, this is, you have to look at the timeline and the steps. And they are taking steps at the same time, but it seems like around the time they would have been traveling to the kennels that Maggie is taking fewer steps than, he, than Paul is. It seems very kind of consistent with Paul walking, but maybe we're wrong. I mean, it, Maybe he's tooling around, taking steps around the house, but that's that's what was testified to. And then eventually he decides, well, you know what, I'm gonna go down there, I'm gonna take this golf cart. All right, that's, it, that's been testified to that we've been concerned about. Now, this was the golf cart that Mark Bell first alluded right. to, which I thought was important um, as Mark became a really good witness for the state, you know, because that was, you know, there was problems with the steps. If, if Alec Murdoch tried to say he walked down there, but a golf cart would be a way to get someplace without registering steps. That was important. Right, and that, that's consistent, but here's the, here's the one main criticism of, of the defense and what they did not get out of Murdoch today was, you know, it's been cast as a very suspicious thing that he would conveniently leave his phone at the main house, and it's been outright inferred, if not implied, that is so he would not be trapped while he went down there and killed his family. So they got out in front of and explained a lot of really damaging things today, but they didn't touch upon the phone at all. I assume it was just a mistake, but he didn't say why or how he, why he didn't take his phone with him. Um, and, and I think, Luke, you and I believe that was a total, probably, misstep by Jim Griffin. I mean, he had a lot of ground to cover. I mean, that's a big thing. Like, everybody, everyone that follows this case at all, it wants to know about that. How, you know, how is he at the kennels, but his, his GPS is showing him at the house. Therefore, he would have uh, planned to leave it there to try to cover up the tracks of the murder. And he just didn't realize that, you know, Paul's video of the kennels busted him. And so, by not explaining that in direct examination, by giving an answer to it, the way he did through a lot of his testimony, getting ahead of problems. That is part of a direct examination is not only humanizing your client on trial for horrendous things, but getting ahead and explaining you know, pitfalls that the state's gonna hammer you on. So what he's done by not answering that question is allow Creighton Waters eventually I mean, Creighton's been, if he ever stops talking about the financial but he will he will allow Creighton Waters to say, now let's talk about something that you and your lawyer didn't cover in front of this jury. You and your lawyer talked about so much, but you know, you didn't tell them what they really want to know when you talked about lying about being at the kennels and your phone shows, you know, you're at the house. Why is that? You were always on your phone. So like it gives a big opportunity for the state to hammer that if Creighton ever stops talking about the financials. Yeah, and so we're getting back to kind of what we heard today. So he, he does decide, even though he's showered, that he might as well go on down the kennels because his family's down there. Maggie had wanted him. 
It conveniently takes the golf cart, which I guess if you showered and you're not really looking to get hot and sweaty, that makes sense. That tracks. But, you know, we've got a very narrow timeline about when their phones stop, about when their estimated time of killings are. You know he's down there on Paul's Snapchat just before that. So, why does he go down there? Why does he spend such a short amount of time down there? I mean, we heard him basically talking about getting down there. The dogs have been lit out of the kennels. They're running wild. They're, they've got freedom. They're peeing on every tree in the pine forest, as boy dogs are like to do. But then, we hear so much about Bubba. I feel like I know this dog. Yeah, right. But this I still, dog needs to I still have not quite figured out the real significance. They started talking about Bubba listening to him, and he, Bubba was happy to bring that chicken over to him. He's proud, and I've got a dog that brings me things very proudly all the time. Then we start hearing about these shock collars that are GPS collars on the dogs, and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. We're about to get some more GPS data. Maybe there's going to be some story to tell. We never heard it. We never got it. Maybe there's nothing there. The dogs definitely know who did these crimes, that's for sure. But then basically, they just sit, Alec just says, well, then I decided I was going to go back up, and I kind of laid down for a second. Maybe I dozed off. Maybe I didn't. And then it was just time. I need. I know I need to go see my mom because today was the day that Dad went in the hospital, and, and, and Miss Mixon had already called me and said, get on over to your mama's house because she's agitated. So we really didn't get a full explanation of, I mean, they. he had to address his lies. He had to own up to being down there, but we didn't really get a full explanation for why it was so short, what was the point of it, you know, did you see any killers passing by you as you drove away? I mean, if Creighton Waters ever gets from fucking talking about the financial crimes, we might hear about that, but you know, right now Creighton is still working on this financial cross-examination. But, so then we, we heard about you know, he drives the way he drives. Well, one one key point, um, as we're talking about how he went to see his mom at Almeida, you know, I thought it was a good point that instead of driving past, because there's a couple different exits, instead of driving past the kennels, you know, he took the main entrance and exit uh, because it was closer towards the Al- Almeida side, the way he would go there. So he left that way and he came in that way. I think... I think a lot of people that have been studying this case are wondering about, well, why is he going to drive past the kennels on the way back and go to the go to the big house unless he knew they were already dead and he was trying to establish his alibi. So he, if you're to believe Alec Murdoch, that was the most direct path um, to see his mom through the main main gate as opposed to going by the kennels. So I, I kind of noted that as a, a moment for the jury to consider you know, his, his truth, so to speak, if you're to believe it. Yeah, that was important. And then so he talked about the drive, letting texting Maggie, you know, making some calls. He didn't really talk so much about the calls. But getting there, he drives the way he drives. He went very clearly went around the back, as he always does. He looked at photos, talked about a parking pad, and parking kind of closer to the back door because that is conveniently where his parents usually are at that time of night. You know, he mentions calling the house phone and Shelly having to let him in. One, one question that I would think we would see on crosses, you don't have a key to your own parents' house, you can't just let yourself in. But I think, 
Maybe somebody, Buster or somebody testified earlier saying they, they typically like to call because you don't want to startle the ladies. Like, I guess if, if Miss Shelley is there late at night, I mean, she's probably dozing off too. Maybe you don't want to just walk in and startle somebody. I wonder how that uh, Miss Smith and Miss Mixon exchange was this morning. I don't know. But that's after Miss Mixon's yeah, testimony. Yeah, yeah. But so he goes in and he's describing his mother in pretty endearing terms. I mean, she's full-on dementia. She has been for a while. She doesn't seem agitated at this point. She's resting. I mean, people might get suspicious about only being there 20 minutes, but there's not really a whole lot to do when you're just to check on your mom. She can't really converse with you. It's very sad. I mean, I think he said she was a shell of a woman that she used to be and that really Maggie didn't even really like to visit because it's just kind of depressing. And then he talks about just jumping, jumping back in the car, and no, before we get to oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh and TikTok will we're learning TikTok, uh, TikTok will ban you for certain words. Oh, so Luke, (laughs) sorry. I think we got our one warning, but we're good. Sorry for my potty language. Um, You know, one thing that I think the defense did to try to get ahead of is you know when he parks at the Almeida house, you know he sits there for a while. You know, I think it's roughly a minute or more, and I, you know, the state would be saying that he's getting rid of evidence or, you know, before he goes in the home. And so what Jim Griffin kind of tried to get ahead of that and asked him, like, what, why were you sitting there? And he says, well, I, my phone had fallen in between the seat and the center console and I was digging it out. And once I got my phone, I then went inside the house. Um, and again, he likes to have his phone with him, right? So and on that point, clearly that's something that they knew they had to get out in front of. And so if, I, if Creighton Waters ever stops talking about the financial crimes and actually talks about this case, mm-hmm. he would go, oh, well, you can't remember these conversations I've talked to you about ad nauseum with these clients you stole from. You can't answer a straight question about looking them in the eye and lying to their faces, but yet you can remember from two years ago that one minute time frame in your parents' driveway where you delayed because you were fumbling for your phone. You remember that? Is that your testimony? So like, again, if we could, if the prosecution can focus on the things that seem like manufactured explanations, mm-hmm. then they might might get a, a guilty verdict here. So hopefully he'll get to that if you're if you're thinking with the state. But he we got out the blue tarp stuff, doesn't know about it, didn't carry it, don't know what you're talking about. And so he and Miss Mixon are on the same team on that. Shelley's out there on the island. Yeah, and to me, you know, he responded pretty emphatically about that. Um, and again, there's no other witness that's ever associated anything blue tarp or blue raincoat with him at all. I mean, we're at the end of the trial no one's put that out there but for Miss Smith, who's talking about a tarp coming in. So it's, it's again, it's one of those things the state has thrown up, but doesn't seem to be any kind of tie into it other than it does have GSR. Right. And then so he leaves, he drives home, he drives like he drives, which we know is relatively fast. And he gets home and he was asked, you know, did you think it was really unusual at that point that Maggie and Paul were not in the main house. And he kind of said, well, not really. I mean, I expected them to be. But when they weren't, I started looking at the places Maggie would like to be. And, and again, you get these kind of endearing anecdotes. 
where he's like, I'm hot natured. She's she's very cold all the time. And so maybe she was going to be in, a, in this little sitting room where she could control her own thermostat. Or maybe she was going to be taking a bath. And I, So you get that sense of kind of who they are. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about how my wife's always cold and I'm always hot. You know, it's just that relatingness that those little things that do help. And so when he realized they weren't there, he was like, well, maybe I'll be down in the kennel. So I'll just jump in my, my truck and drive on down there. And that's when you get to kind of hear this emotional blow by blow of like immediately jumping out of the truck, knowing it was bad, just seeing this scene. Again, we've got the tears, we've got the snot. It's up to the jury to decide whether it's credible or manufactured emotion. But he, you know, interestingly, he did say as well, just kind of spontaneously up there, you know, they just did him so bad, they did him so bad. You know, I, I don't know if that was intentional on his part or not, um, but he did that, you know, kind of resonated with me is what he said, you know, kind of out there on the scene as well. Yeah. And uh, he talks about... He wasn't trying to run from that, I would say. Right. I mean, he talks about a very brief check just seeing him, you see your youngest son with his brains blown out, you know he's dead. A br- you know, just jumping back for his phone. I mean, there's a lot being made of how quick he, you know, it's too quick for him to, to, to for him to have known that they're dead to call 911. I don't know. I mean, you, you see bodies on the ground, you, your headlights are on them, and you recognize them as your family members with brains. Uh, I'd be calling 911 real quick. You know, what... What seemed credible to me and kind of resonated for whatever reason is when he, you know, he, was, he basically described himself as running back and forth between Paul and Maggie, and he basically admits to checking both of them with his hands and admits to getting blood on his, probably on his fingertips, and so he's, he's kind of saying, I think that's probably why there's some blood on the steering wheel of his car or the Suburban, but, you know, somehow the way he described coming up on Paul and seeing, you know, he was lying face down. I think he called him Paul Paul again, and it was a real emotional response. So he was lying face down, and I, I tried to roll him over. And so then, you know, Jim Griffin did a good job at that point of saying, well, talk about that. And he said he put his hand through his belt loop and tried to use it to turn him over just to see him. And he was then describing it, how awful the wounds were. And that's when the phone popped out, and he kind of picked it up and put it back on him. But that, you know, some about the finding your son face down in a pool of blood and, you know, whether he was, whether they were crocodile tears or not, that to me was somehow the details of him describing the face down aspect of, of finding his son pulled at me a little bit. Um, and it, I don't know if it pulled at the jurors or not, but it seemed real to me trying to turn him over so he wasn't lying face down in, in his own blood. Yeah, in my mind's eye, that act, it's almost like a, thought about turning in but realized it was pointless because it's just so damaged, so injured. Um, and so he talks about the phone because we know that's a piece of evidence that's weird that his phone is kind of sitting on his back. You know something else that's interesting? Um, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm just I'm looking at my notes. When he gets back, and I don't think Griffin really intended to do this, but he's like, you know, back to the dogs. Well, where were the dogs? They were in the kennel. So if you are to believe the defense's theory that basically someone was lying in wait and waited for Alec Murdoch to leave the kennels to then go waylay Paul and Maggie 
it appears they waited until the dogs were put up to then do the killings. And so that, you know, to me, that would make sense if I was looking to, to do a killing like that. You know, it's been a lot of testimony that Bubba was a very strong dog. He was a hunting dog. Um, and so the, the dogs were in the kennels. And so I guess, you, you know, it could spin it both ways that you're going to kill your, your family and then put the dogs up or whatever. But it, it, the dogs were definitely up when the killings happened because they were not loose. They were not running around. That, so that, take it for what it's worth, but that was an interesting point that came out today and, I, and had me thinking a lot about that. And if I'm mistake, we've heard a lot about Bubba and how unruly he is. I'm saying it's been said repeatedly by Alec Murdoch himself today that Bubba would pretty much mostly listen to him because this is a trained hunting dog and he was the one that would hunt that dog as, as well as Paul. So... If I'm a state, I'm saying, well, the killer would want to cage those dogs first. Maybe because a trained hunting dog might take a lot of umbrage to somebody shooting its owner, such as Maggie, who it has a special bond with her Paul, and you might be stuck with a dog attack. So the only person that could reliably get those dogs in a kennel by command is Alec Murdoch. That is very true. So if I'm a state, I'm saying that in my closing or on cross-examination. If you're not some, some, talking about the financial Right. If, if you ever stop talking about the financial crimes because some strange 5'4 unknown person isn't going to be able to just command those dogs or even physically get those dogs in the kennel without getting bitten, maybe leave, leaving their own blood there. So I don't know. That's something that just occurred to me. If the state really wants to say that he had that control and that command with those dogs, and, it, and that's another thing that would weigh on the side of him being the killer, but yeah, but it you know they played very gratuitously and sympathetically as nine one one call, and I guess if you're a narcissistic sociopath, you can stage a convincing call, but it was a convincing call. I mean, it, we're all sitting here Monday morning quarterbacking it, and I sit here and I've got a son. Imagine what it would be like if I came upon his body, but I'd be hysterical, I'd be making incoherent noises, and you did hear some of that, you know, this, this guttural sounds, whining sounds from Alec Murdoch as he's trying to answer questions. You can sense some of his frustration about, you know, she's asking him, the 911 operator, did they, did they, did they shoot each other? No, no, they didn't shoot each other. Like, you know, you can feel that frustration that would seem real and natural if you stumbled upon this scene. So we played a lot of that. I think that helped. Um, they fleshed out the, the comment that he said, I should have known. And so that's something mm -hmm. that, you, again, the defense wants to get ahead of comments like that. And again, they're, they're saying, well, he's saying from, from the get, this had to be about the boat crash. This had to be somebody who didn't like Paul, who he received a lot of threats. You know, I should have done more to protect my son. It's kind of the vibe that they were getting at. Mm -hmm. And they acted like they kind of disregarded it. They were almost so, the threats were so over the top that they couldn't be real, yeah. right? And so here he is in, in real time on 911 saying, I should have known. So I don't know what y'all's take on that is, but. Yeah, I personally enjoyed when they kind of like broke down the 911 call, chunked it, and then like let 
Alec kind of give his perspective from like in the moment. You know, I think there was one time where he was, you know, clarifying something that he said that didn't make sense. And he was like, you know, to me at the time, I, you know, saying something about them being here or, you know, whatever, and how that made sense to him in the moment. And then what I found really interesting too about that 911 call was when he was talking about that he was going to go get a gun because he feared for his own life or, you know, or safety because, you know, Killers could still be out there. Killers could still be out there. And so then he goes and gets this gun, um, and he loads it. You kind of broke that down a few nights ago, and I don't know much about guns, but he loaded it, like, erroneously, right? Or just something was weird about the way Yeah, so it's a 16-gauge shell and a 12-gauge shotgun. Right. One of the shells was that. So this is a guy who's a lifelong hunter, has tons of guns, were acting in a calm, controlled fashion, like let's say about to go hunting, he's not going to make that mistake because that mistake could be dangerous if you try to shoot the gun that way. And so the, the point that they're trying to make is that he was so panicked, truly, and so scared and upset that he loaded a very familiar firearm with inconsistent shots because this is real and raw panic and emotion. So now if you're a staging Dexter style sociopathic narcissist of the highest level. Maybe you plan that detail out that, that someday I want to be able to say in a court of law that I was so panicky that I loaded this gun incorrectly in a dangerous way. But I mean, that takes some advanced planning that is typically only seen in Hollywood. So to me, that's a convincing point um, that I'd latched on a long time ago. That they certainly hit. I'm glad they hit it to the fence. That's something they had to do. And he goes back down, and he's still talking with 911. And he, at this point, would have transferred some blood to his truck. We know Maggie's blood is found on the steering wheel. And I like that he didn't try to get too specific, like he was too familiar with this case. Jim Griffin said, "Well, would it have been Maggie or Paul's blood?" He's like, "I don't know. I don't. I just don't know." But so much blood. But if it was, you know. on them and and, you know there's some reference to some blood possibly on on the gun and he's like if it was it was just from you know me grabbing touching her and touching that gun because she never dealt with guns except to put them up and so again you're kind of humanizing her he's talking about their relationship um and then he's he's waiting on police and we know what goes from there um one thing I found kind of moving on from there since it's been so heavily covered, I mean, he, he does, you know, provide his clothes and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, he kind of had this great spontaneous moment today. And, you know, we're, at this point, we're analyzing his testimony from the defense perspective because it was the direct examination of Alex Murdoch. Um, so, you know, to Hannah's point, you know, some of the, endearing uh, nicknames with his family may have been overplayed but here's the first time I really sat up well other than you know I was closely observing his tears but when I really sat up was when he was talking about the interviews he gave and he's already already explained kind of why he lied but in the August 11th interview with um, you know they're talking about you know kind of you know about basically you know well, I won't say the August 11th interview, but 
like it just become after all these interviews and everything, you know, you provided your clothes, didn't you? And did they ever ask you for that blue shirt you were wearing? And would you have provided it just like you did everything else? And he was like, yeah. Um, he's like, the clothes were never important to law enforcement. He's like, they were never important until a number of weeks before the act, this actual trial. When my lawyers filed a motion pushing back against the blood spatter expert that said that there was blood, and not not just any blood, but blood spatter coming like coming off a close range shooting on my shirt, and so that's all of a sudden when like they didn't care about my blue shirt or any shirt I was wearing up until that they thought they had me when they really didn't, and then all of a sudden. When that whole thing was debunked about the out-of-state expert that, you know, after SLED had said there's no blood on it, and then, and then the Attorney General's office hires an expert to, to say, yeah, there is, um, now they care about And then that got really kind of pushed back in, in, in motion filing by the defense. Now, all of a sudden, they care about the, the kind of clothes theory. And he, he just kind of he, – he really got – upset and genuinely angry about that. And that's the, fir- that's the first time that the defense through his testimony kind of directed some ire at the Attorney General's office. Yeah, and they got objected to, but it was overruled. And he's, you know, you always want to be closing or always want to be driving your defense theory. And so he went above and beyond and even and was able to be indignant and echo the defense's attack on the state for even trying that that little line, that little trick. And that, that never came in. It was just something that the jury has heard about from cross-examining a lead investigator. But yeah, I mean, so he, it was kind of like a slap on the hand to the state for a piece of evidence that isn't even in the case. Yeah, and there's a, there's a case called Kyles v. Whitley. It's a Supreme Court case that allows the defense to always be able to attack the integrity of an investigation, even if uh, it's not the state's evidence that they're, they've admitted in an investigation. And so the, 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 even though Craig Waters and John Metters have not introduced or even gone anywhere near that expert that they hired before trial to try to kind of go against their own sled analyst, to say, yeah, there is blood here because you know they found an expert that was willing to say that, even though it just flied in the face of Sled's own analysts. Um, you know, you're allowed to say, you know, because the defense had to get that that turned over to them, they're allowed to say, hey, look how they tried to do me um, in front of the jury to attack the. It's the same kind of reasoning with. You're in the circle until you get yourself out of the circle, which goes against the presumption of innocence. And that's you, it's that same line of, of thought where you get to kind of attack Sled's investigation, you know, as you know, this guy's the only suspect ever, and they didn't really try to look anywhere else. So um, that, you know, I, I, we had not been in the courtroom. We've been working our day job as criminal defense lawyers, but you know, look at a lot of the live kind of tweets from people that were in the courtroom, they all kind of suggested that the jurors really paid a lot of attention to that moment. Um, and some of these reporters in the courtroom were saying that they seemed to see some sympathy in the eyes of the jurors for really the first time in the entire trial. So we've got a question. Um, if Alec Murdoch had come to the Sheely Law Firm and asked to be represented by you two, would you? 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there, a, there's no case that you all wouldn't take? No, there really isn't unless we just know on the outset that the client is just going to be fundamentally uncontrollable or a huge pain in the ass. We've represented, sorry, potty language again. We've represented plenty of people that were difficult, but we don't turn down clients based on moral ground because you're charged with double murder. I mean, we've represented people charged with heinous, heinous crimes. Right, we just represented a man on a double murder in front of Judge Cliff Newman in December yeah. um, with an, another gruesome scene. So it's so the nature of the crime would not stop us, but we, we certainly would have never allowed interviews with Alex Murdoch at all in any shape or form. We never would have participated in those. We would have shut that down and said, y'all, uh, law enforcement, we understand you want to talk to him, but our client is indisposed. This is an emotionally raw time for him. If you'd like to provide us with some questions, we will try to get those answered for you. And then we would have not allowed him to be interviewed. Never, 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 because half of the state's case is based on getting caught in lies based on interviews. That's why you don't talk to police. Um, yeah. So he's, he's kind of indignant for the real first time. Um, and he did it a couple more times about, you know, you charge me with murder and I'm, you know, I go and have blood on my shirt and that kind of thing. Um, and then primacy and recency, he ended the questioning, Jim Griffin did very well with, again, kind of more, you know, sympathetic and humanizing vibes about his feelings, about what kind of woman Maggie was, which is a very nice, lovely description of her. That you know they panned to the audience members and his brother, and they were tearing up. And then you also had another kind of rendition of what a, a adventurous and kind young man Paul was. And then again, asked those final questions again: Did you kill him? No. Was it tear in his eye? And yeah. And so the the other note I'll have about his testimony, you know, after again what you discussed in terms of. His relationships with Paul and Maggie, you know, he did describe the attempt on his suicide on his own life but, um, through Curtis Wilson, cousin cousin Eddie, and uh, you know, you, you guys know the story, but like he, he just they kind of just didn't get into it a whole lot. I'm sure the state will get into it a whole lot more, but the big point I took um, from that was that he basically, you know, he was in, embarrassed about what he had done on terms of the financial crimes. You know, they, and they, they're freely admitting to doing everyone wrong in the financial crimes, which is the only way to gain any credibility in front of the jury. Because there's just, they're just such massive amounts of evidence. So he's not trying to hide from that. He's going, he's going down for the financial crimes. Um, but what he did say was that, you know, when he decided to commit suicide because he, he himself had roughly $12 million of life insurance that he was hoping that could go to Buster and, you know, just the shame and humiliation of, stealing all the money from his clients and the firm. But then he, you know, when he was questioned, did you have any life insurance policies um, on Paul or Maggie that would, that where he would be the, the one to benefit? And he said, no, I never had any insurance on them, which is another question that, you know, a lot of people have asked, you know, they would make a whole lot more sense if there were, you know, life insurance policies on them or he was going to reap a benefit in some way. I mean, bottom line, on the, on the, mo the motive theory 
is simply the state over trying their case to get the lies in front of the jury on the financials to try to help them on their circumstantial evidence. That is plain and is what we call propensity evidence. I'm a bad guy. I lie and I steal and I cheat. So therefore, think about that when I testify and think about that in relation to me killing my my family. But there was, you know, it's not a, a motive in the truest sense of let me stall on the various civil lawsuits that are pending and put a microscope on him and you know one would argue expedited the process the full extent of the attorney general's investigation into his financial i mean all, all these financial charges were fully fleshed out after the deaths of his family and then there was no life insurance on paul or maggie so he's not going to benefit there and clearly he likes to steal money from people so he's not going to get that benefit and then it made it harder for him to get any more line of credit equity loans because Maggie was totally on the on the property at Moselle and half on the property at Edisto. So he couldn't even really get the loans that, that he was getting to kind of ease his financial problems. So it, you know, it is what it is there. But. Do you think, um, do you think the state focusing so heavily on the financial crimes uh, kind of makes it seem like they don't have much to like, you know what I mean? Like, does it make it almost seem like a weak Well, let's talk about the approach. cross. Well, I want to say one more thing about the direct and then the cross will tie into that. Okay. Um, the cross critique. So we've been talking this whole trial, Brad and I have been thinking that as it developed that Alec Murdoch had to testify because there's holes here, there's questions that only he can answer if he has any chance of walking. Um, and again, by walk, it doesn't mean he's going anywhere. Right. He'll, if he got it not guilty on this, he's going to get a significant sentence on the financials. And it may not be life, right. but it will be a heavy period of years on the financial crimes. But so if he's going to get it not guilty, he has to answer some questions. Like, because if he's not the killer, and, and clearly even built into the state's case, you've got clearly a two-shooter, very likely possibility here based on the crime scene. And potentially short shooters. So, you know, you know he's in over his head paying so much money, which has been established five hundred thousand dollars to Eddie Smith. You do not spend fifty grand a month or whatever it is on Oxy. You just don't. So we all kind of expected Alex to, especially when the the questions came out on cross from Jim Griffin to the lead investigator about them and their awareness of. Cousin Eddie being tied to a gang and owing money to a gang and being the supplier for Alec, you expected that they would point the finger at that and Alec's either getting extorted or threats coming from that relationship, um, Ozark-esque, if you will, but they really didn't. They simply stayed the course with it being maybe Somebody, I mean, they didn't. They have no direct evidence, but they said, well, "Why on nine one one did you say you know I should have known?" Well, I'm talking about the boat crash. You know, it's just kind of an assumption. Well, who else might want to hurt Paul? Without really, maybe what I think would have been more credible is Alex to hold his hand up again and say, "I'm sorry. It's my opioid addiction. The people I got in bed with. Where all this money was going to." And, 
and, and I thought he was going to reveal some type of credible threats he was aware of between himself and Eddie that could have explained who would have done this gruesome crime if not him. Now, maybe he didn't want that because they might finally call Eddie to debunk that. I don't know. In a rebuttal case. In a rebuttal case. And maybe that, maybe I'm not giving the defense enough credit, but other than the wildly speculative revenge killing from some boat crash family, he didn't really go to answer any of those questions. And so I think maybe they missed, missed a beat there. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the cross-examination of Creighton by Creighton Waters. Um, and that, you know, we're criminal defense lawyers. Between us, we probably tried over 100 jury trials. Um, and defense lawyers generally, in my humble opinion, we just get more practice at cross-examination because the state has the burden. They've got to direct their witnesses to establish their case. And all along the way, the defense gets to cross-examine those witnesses, whether it's law enforcement or fact witnesses. And then because the burden of proof is on the state, often uh, some, you know, def- the defense lawyer may not put their client on the stand. They got a Fifth Amendment right um, on that regard that the Judge Newman, if Alec Murdoch didn't testify, would have to would have to give a jury instruction saying, listen, you cannot consider the fact that he did not testify as any kind of evidence against him because of his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and the burdens on the state. And so I'd say maybe 80% of criminal defense lawyers don't put up their clients because either they got their clients aren't ready to testify, the facts are terrible, it's a lot of work. It's a, when Luke and I have a murder trial, we're, it's a lot of work. I mean, often we're preparing our clients for their months. testimony for months. Um, because it's not a natural thing. And so to my point, defense lawyers are typically way better at cross-examination techniques than uh, prosecutors because, you know, often they don't have anything to cross-examine. And so that type, like cross-examination technique, we're talking about leading questions, tight control, the sky is blue, correct? Um, Your hair is brown, right? Whereas typically the, prosecutors in directing a witness under the rules have to say things like, well, what color is the sky, sir? And what color is, what if any color is your hair? Which lends itself to wide open responses. So, you know, I think the, the way, so what Creighton Waters started today was he is not, you know, he cross-examined Alex Murdoch for about an hour and 45 minutes today and didn't even get didn't even touch upon what the trial's about so far, which is the murder cases. Now, one question about the murder case. Um, he just, he really wanted to break down every financial, every aspect of every financial crime. And I, I can't imagine they expected Alex Murdoch to freely admit to doing all those things. I think they probably expected he either try to take the fifth and say that he is not gonna testify about that, and that would've been a really bad look in front of the jury. Or maybe they, the prosecutor's best case scenario was maybe he'll argue with us about that, and we can just beat him up all day on the evidence, because it, it is overwhelming evidence of financial crimes. And so instead of that, he's saying, yeah, I did all this stuff, I did wrong, I hurt people I, I cared about, and, and they, I, you know, 
they trusted me and I, I just lied to them. And so what, you know, Creighton Waters definitely is doing this cross-examination because he has such a supreme grasp of the financial crimes that that ain't what we're here for. Um, and he did, he just wanted to go into all the financial crimes and it, I just wonder how the jury, for me as a defense lawyer, I would have loved it. And if you look at the defense, you know, they pan to the defense lawyers and they were perfectly happy with Creighton Waters being frustrated with Alex Murdoch admitting to doing wrong, but not necessarily admitting to remembering a conversation where he looked at a uh, someone that he was representing who's now a victim and he stole money from him and said, I don't remember looking him in the eyes and, and lying to him the way you want to characterize it. And Creighton Waters would get really upset about that. Can and, I talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So here's the thing about that. Creighton Waters spent about an hour about on like 10 different settlements or verdicts that Alec Murdoch won for personal injury clients of various serious injuries, getting those verdicts and settlements, winning legitimate fees for the law firm, but then stealing certain amounts of money from those good people. And what Creighton Waters thought in his mind as he was planning this cross was I'm going to set him up because what he did was I'm going to get him to agree with me that he looked those folks in the eye as they signed on the dotted line lied to them and he was expecting Alex to be like yeah that's I did because then he's gonna go yeah just like you lied to these jurors <laughs> when you told them that you didn't kill your family so he's he thinks that's the hook and, he, he, and Alec to his credit won't give him that he's like well I don't know I mean it was 10 years ago like I don't I, I stole I'm sorry I'm really sad I'm sorry I, I still think about these crimes and the people I hurt but he won't say I looked him in the eye and lied to them and so he's getting really frustrated, but the reason why Waters wants that is for the exact reason that it should not be in the trial. And this may be shocking. And here's, here's a little legal analysis. So we're not talking about facts. We're talking about law here, people. And, and there's probably plenty of people on TikTok that will disagree, but I love a fair trial. There's enough evidence in this case to win for the state. A proper motive is perhaps, you know, the confrontation that day or life insurance. But when you talk about 10 years of stealing and he makes it, he illustrates for the record on appeal that he's trying to say you were a liar then, therefore you are a liar now and should not be believed when you say you didn't kill your family. He's not talking about motive at all. It's not motive. That is what we call propensity evidence that you're saying. You lied then, you lied now. You were bad then, you were bad now. It's not, the rules are designed to prevent against that because people, if you don't have those rules to prevent against that, you're not gonna have fair trials. And only does evidence like that ever come in when you can, in, in supposedly the most rare of rare cases that you can establish motive or identity or absence or mistake of the fact. Here, Creighton Waters is explaining to the record for appellate purposes should Alec Murdoch go down exactly why he's doing it and it's for an improper reason and he spent an hour trying to get that out well and like wouldn't it make sense uh, to to show how he's a liar and that he's lied like in relation to the murder case I mean he could Absolutely. he could go into like the snapchat video and be Absolutely. like you know so you're telling me that you looked that you know, investigator, whatever, in the eye, and you lied to him about being there, and that Snapchat right. video showed it. So, like, why not 
kind of kill two birds with one stone. Uh, that's basic impeachment. You know, you told <laughs> you told that investigator in an interview room that you someone tried to blow your brains out and rob you. That was a lie, right? Lie number one. You told all your friends and law partners on the scene that you ever went down the kennels, and now you're saying that's a lie. Try, get out of whiteboard. Lie number lie two. Lie number two. And so you don't have to try to bring it back to ten years ago because there's plenty of lies right in this case to make a jury think they should not believe Alec Murdoch. I honestly believe that John Metters would have been a thousand times more equipped to do a really good cross on Alec Murdoch, but I think because of Waters' grasp of the financials, which, you know, it's it's the cart leading the horse. You know, they if they let Metters just have a rough outline of the financials, what, you know, I, I just think they just didn't, maybe didn't realize that Murdoch was going to just give it all, give all of that, He's, he's confessing on the record to all the financial crimes. I, I guess they didn't expect that. Um, and again, we're not on trial. They're, this trial is not about the financial crimes. It's about the double murders. And, and, but, you know, Metters would, have, Metters would have done this in a really good way for the state. But I think because they've overtried it and overreached with the financials, they've now left themselves ill-equipped to get the proper guy up to cross-examine Alex Murdoch. And... Very right about that. And I, I'm looking at Metter's body language during this hour and a half cross-examination by Waters that hasn't even struck one question about the actual crime. And he looks, I can see him kind of visibly like sigh and look like, oh my God, I wish I I wish I was there. And, and John John is not one to hide his feelings about anything. No. He never is very expressive. But here's the thing. I mean, we're talking about Alec being very personable. This is Coffin County, and these are people that know his family's name, and he's kind of bubbling it up. He's kind of countrying it up. And Waters is, a, is I don't know where he's from, but he's kind of, he's coming across as a city, uh, a petulant city slicker who seems frustrated, but John Metters would not be that way. John Metters would give country back to country. John Metters is, is the son of a preacher. He would have country witticism and quip to whip Alec Murdoch into shape, and it would have, my opinion is it would have been a, a way more effective um, way to combat what is currently happening with Alec Murdoch because he's got this kind of folksy thing that you can kind of go with him when he says, you know, I'm trying, I'm not trying to fuss with you, I'm trying to answer your question, but I just don't quite understand the question. And like, so I think Metters would have been, uh, would have been better equipped for this. No offense to Waters, but no, and I, you know, I think Waters is going to have to retool. I mean, he's got the whole night to do it. He's got the whole night to, to, to get away from the, if he, so tomorrow, if he starts on his same path and just starts again to trying to get Alec Murdoch to walk him through whatever financial uh, victim crimes are left to walk him through, then he, he's not learned his lesson from today. Um, if he, you know, once one prosecutor starts examining a witness, you're not allowed to like tag out. So this is, this is Waters' witness. He's, he's going to have the heavy lifting to do. And, you know, Alex Murdoch could be on this, at this rate, on the stand all day tomorrow. But and the, uh, other, the other thing is Alec Murdoch is not allowed to talk to his lawyers tonight. That's or right. Tomorrow morning, he's in the middle of testifying. And, and you know, the judge might ask him about that. 
Craig Waters needs to grab himself a bourbon with John Metters tonight and have a little powwow about just put the financial stuff aside. Maybe talk about the competition that day at the law firm, but get into this case. But on the totality of today's testimony from Alec Murdoch through both direct and cross, I think the state has really missed an opportunity. I think that hour and 45 minutes was probably, of uh, uh, Waters' cross-examination was probably extremely frustrating to the jury um, for the reasons we've stated. I think Alec Murdoch, I think his lawyers probably at this point couldn't be any happier. Um, you know, a lot of people have various opinions on, you know, the happiness of Dick Carpootlian and Jim Griffin, but like they kept on panning to Dick Carpootlian and he looked as comfortable as he could be for the first time in this trial. Um, he looked almost smug as he was watching Creighton Waters attempt to cross-examine Alex Murdoch on financial crimes that are not on trial to in this, this month of trial um, and not getting any traction from Alex Murdoch. So it was very fascinating. Um, and you're right, Luke. Um, Creighton needs to have a drink with John and kind of retool on how to approach it. But everybody, I mean, if you're, we'll be on, I'm sure, after Alex Murdoch is done testifying uh, later on, whether it's tomorrow or, or, or Monday, but mark my words, if he goes right into the financials again and just tries to dive into that, he has failed and maybe maybe lost this thing for the state. What, what, what do we got? So we'll use the last little bit of time for this live to answer any questions that you all might still have. Um, and so while we're waiting for those questions to come in, a few people wanted to know about some cases that you guys are currently working or have worked. Yeah, <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> yeah. We, we can't really talk about current cases, um, or I'll just say we won't, it probably wouldn't be good, but we've done a bunch of murder cases. We, we, we're kind of known, um, handle a lot of self-defense style murder cases that's you know a lot of people come find us for that reason um, we do a lot of work with standard ground laws in South Carolina immunity police officer shootings right um, domestic cases homicide by child abuse I mean we've, we've had some crazy cases that are not that different from what's going on in the Murdoch trial um, that's just what we do that's what we get sought sought out for, um, but we also do smaller cases and we have associates that help us with some of those, and, but we like, to, we like to spend most of our time dissecting kind of the more heavy duty cases. Um, when will jury deliberations begin and an estimate on how long you believe they'll take? Well, so presumably Alex Murdoch is the last witness to testify for the defense. He would be their closer. The one Bubba, the dog comes. <laughs> yeah, I would love if the dog came. Um, then the question will be, does the state want to put up a rebuttal case? So they, they can deal with things that are, have been brought up in the defense's case um, and address those issues. You know, Judge Newman will allow that, um, if it's appropriate, um, to, to deal with some of these things, potentially that Alex Murdoch is saying. Um, you know, the state so far has demonstrated a, a, a wonderful, this is sarcastic, ability to overtry a case. You know, there's so much attention on this case, you know, it's, it's hard for a pro 
prosecutor to not throw everything in the kitchen sink at a case. You know, so, with some cases with, with that are, you know, you know, we had a double murder case in December that the prosecutor, you know, didn't have any national attention. The prosecutor very, very much streamlined it. Um, this case is so different because there's so much scrutiny that if they didn't put up all the evidence that people thought maybe they should, then maybe they would be critiqued about that. Um, but yeah, certainly there could be a rebuttal case, how many witnesses that would be, and then closing arguments um, by both sides. First, you have to have a, a charging conference so that you know what jury, you can argue about what jury charges are given to the jury. And, 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 then, and then only then does the jury get the case, and Judge Newman's practice is to give written jury instructions. So the, you know, he will say in his charging conference, you are the judges of the fact, ladies and gentlemen of the juries. I am the I am the law, and so he he presents them with written uh, instructions that are all about the laws of reasonable doubt, the elements of murder, um, you know what kind of inferences they can make from you know evidence of suicide, credibility of witnesses. He gives it all to them to pour over, and th this case has had so much evidence introduced, exhibits, so. With a case of this magnitude, I would say it's going to take a. I would, I would imagine a, a lengthy deliberation process. This is, this is not a slam dunk case. Um, I think they the last exhibits they put in were like five seventy five or something. So you, you would hope that the jury would go through all the evidence that they find important, really deliberate, and I think the shortest verdict we've ever got was like four minutes. They're going to take as much time as they need to get a unanimous decision, and if they can't, it's a hung jury. I know we touched on this question last night, um, but uh, some viewers want to know, again, if you all think that he is guilty. I know, Brian, you said you were going to hold off and wait until you uh, maybe heard from Alec himself. Yeah, uh, and now that I've heard from him, I don't think he did it. I don't think he's 100% being honest about his knowledge of, about the threats and what's really going on. I don't, I don't think this is all about the vote case. But I, based on me assessing his credibility and his reactions, I don't think he did it. I think he knows a whole lot more than what he's telling, though, and whether or not that gets him convicted because he's not being completely honest. Uh, the jury may not buy it, but I don't think he pulled the trigger. Uh, based on what I'm seeing today. Luke? It's a tough one. I mean, I, I think I'm basically with Brian, I, and I'm biased. I'm a, I've never been a prosecutor, a long-time defense lawyer. I always gravitate towards the little guy. I'm not saying Alex Murdoch's life was a little guy by any means, but when you have the power, the awesome power of the state of South Carolina, spending weeks putting up evidence to try to convict you of murder, then you're the little guy. Um, but I think just gauging genuine emotion as I watched the snot roll from his face today. You know, I've seen, and I've put up lots of clients to testify. Rarely have I seen emotion like that. I think it was consistent. I, I think, I don't think he did it. There's clearly to me two shooters in this scene, but I think he knows more. I don't think it's about the boat case. I think it's probably about some stuff he got into that got him way over his head, like where all the missing money is, and he's not willing to fess up to that, and 
threats or maybe because he's scared to. But, you know, juries are going to use their everyday experiences and, and he's had so many lies that he's told that if, if they think like we're thinking, they may not buy his story. But I, I think he truly loved those folks and, you know, it, you see a lot of domestic cases, men killing women particularly in, in, in relationships, but you very rarely see adult men kill their grown adult son without some kind of real preceding conflict. It just doesn't happen very much. So I, that, that's the thing that um, stands out to me as, as well. Yeah, that's kind of, it kind of leads into the next things like, you know, what is the motive? What do you guys think the motive for killing his family would have been? And, you know, there's obviously the theory that he got in too deep with bad people. This was a way to send a message. Maybe now he knows who those people are, but he's having to cover that with the boat accident because he still fears for his investor's life. You know, um, just in our experience in representing people <clears throat> in murder cases, if it's people that know each other, so there's all kinds of, you know, stranger killings where it's drug deals gone bad and, and home invasions or people get killed, but in terms of people that know each other that commit murders, you know, in a family dynamic, it's normally about money or infidelity or children. And, I, you know, those are the causes that people erupt into violence. Um, and we haven't heard anything about that. Uh, and the jury, well, maybe we have heard some things um, outside the presence of the jury, but the jury has not heard anything about that. So you're referring to infidelity many years back. Yeah, that was outside of the presence of the jury. But it's those are the reasons that families kill each other um, in, our, in my experience. And so that's the thing about the motive in this case. If he was buying life insurance policies for Maggie and Paul, and you know he was in over his head in debt for for drug and or other shady dealings, and and he also thought, well, I'll just kill Paul to kind of end the that stress on the family. He's a bad egg, and I'll also get the life insurance money, and we'll I'll kick that back in to pay back the the firm, and we'll do it discreetly, and no one will know. Well, maybe I understand that, and maybe that would be a a, a, a plausible motive. But I don't, I, don't, I don't find a motive in this case right now that I understand. In our experience with all the folks we've represented regarding domestic, whether it's a woman on man or man on woman, I mean, this guy's in his 50s, and there's not ever been an instance or a report of any domestic violence towards his children or towards his wife. So for, usually it's a long history of that, and then eventually you take it too far and you pull a gun too hard or someone gets thrown down some stairs but here there's never anything and all of a sudden both of, both of them dead in one scene um, so that kind of lends itself, itself to the lack of motive and, and you know, the jurors can be thinking about a lack of coherent reason for this um, and we know what the state's tried to say times was um, if you believe that Maggie like saw Paul get shot um, obviously she would have heard the the gunshots 
but I don't I don't know where she was like in place, like if she would have had a, a view of Paul. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, I mean she. I guess there's a theory that if someone was looking to hurt Paul because of the boat crash or whatever, that she could be collateral damage. Yeah. Um, and certainly you'd have to kill her as a living witness to your watching your own crime. That's the other reason, you know. I, solve the boat crash if you're Alec Murdoch and, and limit your exposure and you also need a distraction from your impending financial doom go kill him and fake an accident out there in the dove field. You don't need to kill your wife at the same time. So that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Lots of questions. Um, but I think that's probably all for tonight and then I guess Alec will take the stand again tomorrow. Yeah, he, again. he's technically still on the stand. He can have no communication with his lawyers. He can't talk to anybody about his testimony. And so let's all see if Creighton changes his approach, uh, gets away from the financials, and start starts cross-examining on what the jury wants to hear about, which is the murders. Um, so hopefully John and Creighton can get have a powwow. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, we'll see you guys next time. Follow along on our TikTok or Instagram, any of our other social medias, Facebook, um, Twitter, LinkedIn. We'll share um, if and when we're going live again, um, likely again tomorrow. I don't see how we can't with Alex Murdoch on the stand. Right. So catch us again live tomorrow, immediately following uh, the trial. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank All right, you. Everybody. Thank you. I'm going to awkwardly come and turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.